On behalf of everyone here at the Open Forum Podcast, we would like to wish all of our listeners and their families a very happy holiday and an amazing, happy, and healthy new year. Without further ado, Episode 8. This is the Open Forum Podcast. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Open Forum Podcast. My name is Mike Miller, joined by my co-host Mike Martinez to bring you the news, helpful insight, and more from the world of physical education. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mr. Miller. How's, How's it things going? going? You know, we're here. We are. I'm, I'm super pumped. We're right in the middle of our badminton unit with my ninth graders that we just started a couple weeks ago. Nice. And they're absolutely loving it. Most of them are playing it for the first time. I love, love, love dropping some new, some new activities, new sports, new games on them and seeing how that develops over, over time. It's been fun sharing a new sport that I'm passionate about with them. So living the high life right now. How about you? Good, good. Um, we're just getting to the middle slash end of our pickleball unit, awesome. which was an experiment to begin with, and it it went pretty well. It went pretty well. They they picked it up. It, it was a little rough in the beginning. I had to really work for that buy in. But once we start really, once they got better at the skill, sure, it became a lot easier for them to get into the actual game. Awesome. So glad to hear that. Um, and for those out there who are loyal listeners, um, you might have noticed that we went to monthly releases. We felt that our topics were so good that we didn't want to rush through them. So instead of releasing every two weeks, we're now at an every month schedule. So be sure to follow myself, Mike, Open Phys Ed at US Games to make sure that you always know uh, when that when the new Open Forum podcast is going to drop. And not only have the topics been so good, I think the guests yes. that we've had on have been so good. I, I feel like the experience that we're drawing from open national trainers and from people who are you know writing in, calling in, or I guess not calling in, but emailing and tweeting yeah. has, has been so valuable. It's great to hear from people all over the country who teach at all different levels, who are sharing their tidbits of wisdom and knowledge and just it's always fun talking shop yeah. with, with good pe people absolutely speaking of good pe people we have one of the best on with us today she is the recently past president of shape florida this is ashley grimes joining us from the great southeast ashley tell us a little bit about yourself hey guys so i am ashley i am i live in the tampa bay area I currently am the specialist for health and physical education for Pinellas County Schools, which is a fairly large school district. I specialize in uh, instructional best practices and professional development for our teachers and recently have become one of the, the national trainers for the OPEN program. So it's great to be here and I look forward to talking with you all today about assessment. And we are so, so thrilled to have you on. Those of you who follow OPEN on Twitter, at Open Phys Ed, you probably saw pictures from the Shape Florida Conference a few mm -hmm. weeks back. Ashley was all over the place down there. <laughs> uh, I saw her in, in pictures with Aaron Hart, in videos, doing her thing down there. So we're, we're thrilled to have her on as a valuable resource as we kick around the topic of assessment in PE. This is definitely one of those high leverage, yeah. hot button topics that are it's so vitally important to what we do. And I, I can't think of a better person to chat about assessment with than, than Ashley, who's a true expert in this field. So why don't we just get started talking about assessment in, I guess this is like the, the low hanging fruit, you know, lob, lob ball question here. Ashley, why do we assess in PE? So assessment is one of the, 
really critical components of physical education. It's one of those pieces that's going to make inferences um, about where your students are, about where your program is, um, what you need to change in class. And it's actually one of those things that a lot of teachers are so uncomfortable in using. In most teachers, they are really uncomfortable using them because they think, well, you know, I don't have time to have my kids sit down and, and use a paper and pencil, but assessment looks so different in so many different situations. So it, it's one of those things that, you know, you could use it to guide your instruction, but it can also be used as a reflection for you as the teacher. You know, how did you present something to your students? Do you need to reteach? Do you need to remediate those different pieces? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm already, I'm so excited already. I'm hearing so much, again, just plain wisdom yeah. coming from Ashley. I know when I started out as a teacher, the only thing I knew about assessment was A, that every single person I talked to was like, oh, I don't have time. You know, I only see my kids X amount of times a week. I don't have time for paper and pencils. Or all I do is my fitness gram assessment in the fall and spring, and we're good to go. So let's talk a little bit more about like specifically what are some of the things that we assess, uh, is it fitness? Uh, assessment, fitness assessment, right? Exactly, yeah. is it is it skill-based, <laughs> is it is it fitness assessments, is it concepts, is it vocab? What, what does that look like in your classroom? So it's all of those things. You know, fitness assessment obviously is the most predominant type of assessment that we utilize, but it's really important that we think about our pre-assessment and then our post-assessment. Now, when we do the pre-assessment, it kind of sets the premise and it, it sets the idea of where your students are initially with their fitness. What we like to do in our classes and what I've implemented within our school district is aligned to the PYFP program, is having the students pre-assess themselves, where they are at the, at the beginning of the year. I then have them analyze their scores against the healthy fitness zones. They identify where they are and then I have them set SMART goals based on, those, on that assessment. That helps the students to then take ownership of their fitness and ownership of, of that test to make it meaningful. If you don't make a, an assessment meaningful for a student, they're gonna say, I don't care, you know, what does this mean? So when they set their goal, they'll focus on a particular area. And then I have them use progress monitoring assessments throughout the year based on that component that they were working on within their SMART goal. So then at the end of the year, when we do a post-assessment on their fitness, they can tell and they can reflect on what their SMART goal was and what they did to achieve that final, um, that final score in the post-assessment. That's awesome. Now, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of different things in that answer. The, I think the biggest, I guess, tidbit that jumped out, we're talking about individualized learning here now. Yeah. If you have 30 kids in your class who are all taking the same test, but are setting individualized goals that pertain to them right away you made that test meaningful and now you've given each one a, a different personalized target to work towards how uh what do you do in between that for specifically for fitness assessments uh we're talking fall and then spring how do you reflect on those goals mid-year how do you check the progress towards those goals as the months go on so we do a lot of different pieces and we do a lot of different kind of formative assessments within that kind of checking up period. So 
sometimes we'll have the students do own self-assessments. We'll set up some station work around the gym and we'll allow them to self-select what activities that they're going to do to work on, you know, muscular strength and endurance, or if it's going to be aerobic capacity, we give them some self-assessment areas. Sometimes we have them do peer assessment. So we, we pair them up and we have them work with each other and, and assess each other with whatever the activity may be. I'll do a lot of teacher-student discussion so they can actually self-reflect with discussing with me as the, as the instructor. I'll sometimes do a checklist where I'll have the students, you know, doing a specific um, activity and I'll have specific criteria within each of those stations or within each of those activities, where, whether I'm just checking off whether they did it or not. And then journaling. Sometimes I'll have the students journal, you know, what are you doing with outside the school day to support improvement and flexibility? So all of those pieces come together in almost like a portfolio. So at the end of the year, they can say, based on fitness improvement, what did you, what did you do to contribute to the final end result as that summative assessment? That's so awesome. One thing, again, total transparency that I have not been brave enough to experiment with is the journaling piece. Yeah. I think like that's such a strong way, again, to make what we're doing meaningful, to take it outside of the four walls of the gym or out of the the constructs of your outdoor space and really make the students internalize what they're doing. I I thought I was on a one-way track to teacher of the year when I first started doing smart goals with the kids and having them really take ownership of their learning until I realized that the goals that they set in September, October, they were exceeding by like a hundred times in June and I was doing nothing to track that in between. Just by them being active in your class. Right. Yeah. So had I been doing even a, a halfway decent job of doing my job, we could have been assessing that along the way and then resetting those goals to keep them upping the bar and, and chasing, you know, higher levels instead of, you know, I want to improve my push-up score by two when they really ended up, put, you know, improving it by 15. Which is one of the PYFP benchmarks in that yep. area. Is Absolutely. Re, is reassessing the SMART goals and adjusting your plan accordingly. Speaking of PYFP, I know, Ashley, you mentioned this before. Am I correct? Are, are you also a, a, a national PYFP trainer? Yes. I thought so. I thought I remember seeing your name. I, I recently went through that process this summer as well. We can either do a separate episode on this, <laughs> or you and I can just talk offline. I have tons of questions about that for you. Okay. But um, great, great stuff that I'm hearing so far related specifically to fitness testing and ways of incorporating, you know, analyzing that data after your first assessment and then building that roadmap for each student as they progress towards reaching those goals. How is that the same or how is it different from, let's say, a skills-based unit or you know, a, a game unit as opposed to fitness? Well, I mean, think about it. If you're doing a dribbling unit or if you're doing, um, say, you're in a, say you're in a secondary class and you're doing a basketball unit and you're looking at different skills of the sport, and you have the students do a pre-assessment at the beginning, and maybe you're having them do a peer assessment, or maybe you're checking as the teacher and doing that. Say you're looking at particular cues and you have the students when they peer assess each other, say that they missed, um, you know, shoulder width stance, or they missed, you know, proper hand placement on the ball. All of those things can be revisited. So a lot of times we look at, um, you know, quantitative measures Mm -hmm. But we really want to look at the qualitative measures because if we don't really care if a student gets, you know, 10 out of 10 free throws, because here's the thing. If you look at a professional player, they're not going to get 10 out of 10. 
right. you know, look at their, look at their shooting percentages. So are you saying that they're a C-level athlete and they're, in, <laughs> they're getting paid millions of dollars? No. But if we look at particular skill cues and we assess those skill cues, then the chances of them being successful quantitatively are there. But if we're looking at just quantitative and we're looking at, does a student achieve this number out of this number? It's not really um, effective for the student nor for you as the teacher instructionally. Because if I, if I go and I do an assessment and I'm looking at proper technique or skill cues for the free throw shot, as a teacher and I see that 70% of my students are not successful meeting skill cues A, B, and C, then I know that as a teacher, that's going to inform me that I need to reteach. Whereas if I'm just looking at how many that they're making, what is that teaching me? I'm just saying, oh, well, I have, I have a group of students that just don't make shots. So it gives me information on, you know, what I need to specify in and really focus on in my instruction. And as I'm hearing you answer this question, I'm thinking of taking it, especially at the secondary level, even past just skills, Thinking, you know, the whole backwards design model, I could be teaching a concept, you know, creating open space in a dynamic environment or reducing open space by, you know, using angles or you know, communicating with teammates. And once I know what I'm trying to teach my students, now I can design activities and assessments to test whether they actually got that concept or not, and then can easily assess whether they're performing at that level or not. And as Ashley just mentioned, if one or two students out of 30 are struggling, then I know I can target those two students and kind of raise them up. If 25 of them aren't getting it, I drop the ball somewhere yeah. and need to go back and reteach that. So I'm hearing skills, concepts, basically just analyzing and acknowledging what am I trying to teach and then figuring out how to test to see if that was actually taught. The big piece that I use is that once, so like I, during my team handball unit, it was our first big skill assessment based unit. So at the beginning, I give them a pen and paper assessment for, you know, to check their understanding for rules and that kind of stuff and a little bit of history of the game. But then inside of that packet, um, and I know it's similar to what you do, Mike, um, because, you know, any good teacher uses the resources of other teachers around them <laughs> there. I, I give them the skill testing rubric that they are going to be tested on before I even look at their skill. So that way they know exactly what they're working towards during all the practice inside of class. So they have that information at their fingertips through the entire practice. So that way they know what bar they're trying to hit. That's awesome. One of the, for lack of a better term, complaints or barriers that I often hear in talking to teachers about assessment and actually kind of touched on it earlier was the, I don't have time for pen and paper assessments or also I only see my kids once a week or twice a week. I don't have time to do a pre and post in every unit. What are some, some tips or some tricks or some strategies to still allow for meaningful assessment to take place, especially in a skills-based unit? where you're trying to see where we're starting day one, where we finish day eight, and make sure you get 25, 30, 35 kids in a class properly assessed. So one of the things um, that I'd like to, I guess, start with is making sure that your, that your assessments are standards-based assessments. So mm -hmm. whether it be state standards or it be um, the national 
uh, grade level outcomes, you know, from Shape America is making sure that you can unpack those standards and identify what you need your students to know and be able to do as a result of the standard. Because if you start with that piece, then you'll know what you need to focus on for the assessment. Because if we look at our standards, they're so broad that as a whole, that it's really hard to identify exactly what you want them to be able to know and be able to do. So if you can unpack the standard first, say um, you're look, you're identifying the rules of a game or something like that. Well, that would be more cognitive based. But if you're looking at the skill assessments, you could say, here are the particular cues that I want to focus on, or here are the particular pieces of that unit that I want to assess. So you could set up different assessments, whether they be just an observational checklist and only pick three things. Don't have the students pick like 10 different things that they're looking at, because most likely you're not going to get through all of all of that and all the students. I've been around, you know, the state of Florida and I've networked with a lot of people that say that their class sizes are 60 to 90 kids in a class. Mm. It is not feasible to struggle properly assess every single student if you're looking at 10 different things. So what I like to do is I like to break up um, some of my classes and I like to recommend that you only look at three items and you, you group them up. Another piece that's really good is doing a video and having the students video a particular skill, maybe putting them in groups of three or four and giving them either an iPad or you give them, you know, sometimes we let them use their phone and we let them video and then we do a feedback loop. So I'll have one student video a student. I'll have one student actually holding or actually performing. And then I have another student that is actually providing feedback to the student. So that's a form of assessment. And I have them email it to me or email it to the teacher. And that's something that they can use as an assessment by kind of viewing that after the fact. But the good thing about that is it helps the different types of learners. So you've got your kinesthetic learner, which is learning by doing. You've got one student that's an auditory learner that's kind of listening to the feedback from another student from another student, you have a visual learner that can actually view um, the asset, you know, the actual action being done. And then, you know, you can actually see it. And as the teacher, it just helps to, to show that your students know and can do and can actually analyze others at the same time. So it's, it's hitting a lot of different aspects and it's actually upping the rigor of your assessment and what you're doing in class. That's absolutely brilliant. I, I mean, there's so much gold in that answer there. I've, I've often told people, I feel like you really internalize and get a be- even deeper understanding for a topic or an activity if you can teach it to somebody else. So mm-hmm. for a student who maybe is making the same mistakes, if they're watching another student do it and can give feedback, that in- inherently is going to make their performance better because they're seeing the same error being done by somebody else. They have to really... Again, I feel like I'm using the same word here, but internalize the cues and the proper steps to give that feedback, which is in turn is going to make them even a stronger performer when their time is up. Yeah. And I mean, think about like those students that are big time athletes, right? They think they know everything, but (laughs) the perfect example I can give is if we're doing an overhand throw and you have a player that, you know, doesn't use the traditional form of the throw you know, ball up by the ear, but they kind of throw sidearm, you know, if we're assessing a, a proper overhand throw, 
it's going to be an eye-opening and aha moment for that student when they see themselves on video and we compare it to the proper technique for throwing. Absolutely. So it's so important because you can have somebody who's the star baseball player, but is not throwing properly. Right. You know? So it really kind of brings light to the situation. And that's where some of those apps like Coach's Eye or Coach My Video. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Where those come in 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 such in, in such great a great benefit to your teaching. Also, it allows you to have a second, third, or fourth set of eyes in the room. You could be working with one station assessing over here while Johnny's group is using the iPad or phone, whatever the case is, to record, which now you can go back and look at at a separate time, or they can give feedback to each other. So it's giving the illusion of three, four, five, six teachers in the room at the same time. Uh, if we can go back for just one second, one thing that you had mentioned before, Ashley, that like, just filled my heart with, with, with pride and joy is the idea of our lessons and our assessments being standards-based. Um, again, a lot of pushback and and complaints and barriers that I've gotten from teachers in the past was that, well, my unit's only eight days long. So if we do a pre and a post and I realize that Mike hasn't mastered the, I don't know, leading a receiver with a pass, well, the unit's over now. We can't go back to it. But we're not teaching a sport or even a, it, we're teaching to a standard. So you can teach that same exact skill or concept in a future unit where the objective, the outcome is still the exact same. But now instead of doing it in soccer, we're doing it in floor hockey or we're doing it in football football, yeah. or any of the ultimate games. So the concept is the same. So even if I only assessed 20 out of 30 in handball, for example, on that one concept, I can go back and do that in basketball and get the other 10 kids who are still working towards the same concept or the same outcome because it's rooted in standards. So I'm so, so glad to hear you bring that up, Ashley. Um, we kind of have touched on this already, the idea of using video and using students to assess. What do you think are the the, the pros, cons, the, the benefits or the negatives of just having a teacher assess students, having peers assess each other, or having students do self-assessments? Well, I think that when you're looking at students, younger students, I think mm -hmm. a lot of the assessments are, you know, they focus around the teacher-directed assessments. It doesn't mean that you can't do um, student to student assessments or self assessments. But a lot of times we think about, I mean, think about the learning process. When we are moving our students from elementary to middle school to high school, the level of independence grows. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with assessments. It's natural to have at the elementary level more teacher dependent assessments because it's easier. But it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It's just you have to, again, Make sure that you're focusing on standards and giving specific cues. It's a teaching, you know, you have to teach your students to be able to assess properly. And if you have a student that just doesn't have a handle on what they're supposed to be doing within the assessment itself or within the skill itself, it's going to be difficult for them to assess. But, but think about it like this. You might have a student that's really, is really successful doing it, but they don't know how to do it, but you mm -hmm. could flip it. So they know how to do it, but can't actually physically perform the skill. So there is a benefit to actually having some of those students at the lower levels assess each other because it will help you as the teacher to identify, do they just know it or do they know how to do it? Or I should say, and, or can they do both? Um, and then when we look at the middle school level, 
you're giving more independence and you're able to, I love to use station work because we just talked about a little bit earlier that how do you get through a class of 60 or 90 kids? Well, if you use stations and you separate them out, each station could be focusing on a different particular skill. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I also like to do differentiated stations for inclusion. You know, how, if I have a student that's not successful hitting a standard size ball or dribbling a particular ball or volleying, I may give other pieces of equipment out there to assess whether or not the student can perform the skill, but maybe with a different piece of equipment. So if we're working on the forearm pass in in volleyball, if I know that a student is having a tough time using a traditional volleyball, I might give them a beach ball. Can they hit the ball? It's a little bit larger. And are they making progress towards um, achieving all of those cues? So, you know, that's really important. And then when you get to high school, that's when I like to do a little bit more of, you know, student directed assessment. I think it's really important that you're, you're almost not totally, but almost completely turning the learning process over to the students. Because think about it, when they leave us, we're not going to be there to hold their hands and we're not going to be there to assess what they're doing. So, you know, whether it be if we're looking at the fitness unit and we're looking at program design, are we going to tell them if their designing of a program is correct or not? No, but when they leave us, they have to say, if I want to lose a little bit of weight, I know that I need to um, eat healthier and this is what I'll eat. Or I know that I need to increase the amount of um, cardiovascular activity that I'm doing. So, you know, those different pieces. But like I said before, you have to make sure that you are teaching the students the proper way, how to perform the skill, if they're going to assess each other. And that's going to be your biggest barrier. Just like in fitness, if I don't teach the students how to properly do a push-up, or if I don't teach them how to, if we're looking at the pacer test and fitness gram, I'm not going to have them assess each other if I know that they're also not properly performing that skill or that activity, because you're not going to get authentic data um, from the actual assessment itself. Now, to speak a little bit to different learning styles, a big thing that I try to do is you, you try to instill that confidence wherever you can. So if you have a student who is a little less skillful. We know, you know, 30 different students can come in at a hundred different skill levels. So if you could pull that one student who is maybe having difficulty throwing a Frisbee properly, you know, keeping, keeping their hand level to make sure the, the beef flies level and flies straight, but they're really, really great at watching another student throw and picking out their hand position or their fingers or their elbow being in the right angle keying into them to do some of those those primary peer assessments is going to, even though they're having difficulty doing the physical skill, it's going to bring up their confidence level because they know they're good at something, even if it's not physically throwing the Frisbee straight. Absolutely. I couldn't help but smiling and reminiscing a little to my elementary school teaching yeah. days when Ashley was talking about you know the, the teacher-led assessments. I did tinker around quite a bit back in those days with not so much uh, peer assessments because, again, when you're in kindergarten through fourth or fifth grade, yeah, it's tough. It, it, you have to teach the assessment first, mm-hmm. and I feel like that took up a lot of time. But I feel like even younger kids, 
are fantastic at self-assessment. Yeah. They can feel whether they're successful at doing something or whether they think they need more work. And that could be as simple as, you know, do I put my sticker on the smiley face, the neutral face, or the frown face? You know, how did I do today kind of a thing. And when that class leaves, you can kind of get a sense of a teacher like, wow, my kids feel really good about this. Or I thought it looked okay, but they don't feel good about it. So maybe we should spend one more day working on this skill. When we did do peer-to-peer assessments, I found giving pictures or having charts with the cues on there and like circling, whether it's elbow should be placed here, lead foot should be placed here, hip to target, things like that, made it easier for the kids to see like uh, almost like a, like a, a picture checklist almost. These are the things that I'm looking for. Either I see it or I don't. So it made it easier for the student to kind of figure out what am I looking for? Was it a thumbs up or a thumbs down to make that a little easier? Also from a behavior management po- uh, perspective, if I only have the space or the equipment for 15 kids to be doing something, guess what? Those other 15 now are going to be assessors, whether they're 100% prepared for it or not, because it's going to keep them engaged. It's their focus on what's going on, on the task at hand. And with time, just like anything else, they'll get better at it because they're doing it on a frequent basis. So I, I don't want to scare anyone away from thinking, oh, I can't assess. I, I, I teach kindergarten through second grade. You absolutely can with a little bit of pre-work and preparation on your end. And it's only going to benefit your students in the long run and your class in the immediate as well. You know, one thing that I, I noticed about the open resources is yes. it's awesome. It actually speaks to what you... Oh. Sorry about my dogs in the background. Um, <laughs> Everyone's speaks, welcome here. Yeah. <laughs> it speaks to what you were saying about using the pictures. So Open does a really good job about utilizing some of those pictures, like the smiley face, the kind of like even face, and then the frowny face as far as where they are. So a lot of times students won't really know how to identify, you know, what is good and what's okay and what's not quite there. But using those pictures really help. So I know definitely within the K through two unit and the three through five unit, there are definitely some of those assessments available within the open resources. Those of you who are seasoned open phyzed.org veterans know exactly what Ashley's talking about. If you are <laughs> new to the show or new to the website, folks, every single module on there has a laundry list of assessments for each module, whether it's a self-assessment, a peer assessment, a teacher assessment. There's also, in, in most cases, a teacher reflection assessment. So you can kind of assess yourself about how well a activity went or a module overall. I, I can't speak highly enough about the assessment-based resources that Open has available to you. One cool thing I used to do with my kindergartners was I would pick out like cartoon clip art off the internet. And during our balancing unit, I would have them... I would printed out on a big poster we had a poster maker so on their way to their line they would tap what caricature they felt like when they were balancing today and like one was a perfect ballerina and one was like someone on a balance beam that was kind of shaky and then it was like a person laying on the floor so (laughs) they got to you know run somewhere and slap the wall and they got to accurately self-assess how they felt when they were balancing today in a in a cool fun way so for sure yeah. I had another teacher actually use something that was really cool. So the emoji movie came out, right? Oh, and yes. so a lot of kids really like that. So I had a teacher that utilized the emojis as mm-hmm. like indicators. And I, I recently went to a conference. It was this past summer. And they actually created an exit ticket out the door with the emojis on it. 
So you can imagine your kids that are buying into, you know, and have seen that emoji movie and they can relate to, you know, the emojis. Uh, it's a good way to make it more relevant for the students and give them a little bit more comfort when, when assessing themselves. And that's also good for students with autism who um, have difficulty kind of processing and identifying feelings and emotions where they can look at that um, objectively and be able to express how they were feeling um, through something like an emoji or something like a picture. So that, you know, it keys into one of those universal adaptations that works for all your students on whatever level they are. For sure. Now that I've been in the secondary world, you know, the high school world for the last year, year and change, I, I'm often wrestling with myself over, is this too childish or are my kids going to think I'm crazy? Which more often the answer, you know, more often than not, the answer is yes, because I'm silly yeah. and ridiculous. But when it comes time for a self-assessment or a quick check for understanding or an, an exit slip of sorts, if I don't want to go the emoji route, I often defer to clickers as a, a quick cognitive assessment, whether it's a a rule that we're that we're trying to you know wrap our heads around or a concept that I want to see how many kids remembered from minute one to minute 55 of my class. An easy, easy way. And also it's I love clickers because they're anonymous. If you know. If I'm asking kids, if I'm cold calling kids, there's always that, that, that fear. He's going to call on me. I don't know the answer. I'm going to look stupid. And things can go awry pretty quick. But if I'm just holding up a card that no one knows whether I'm picking A, B, C, or D, I can have confidence to throw my answer up there because if I do get it wrong, no one's going to know it but me and the teacher. So I think it's an awesome, awesome way to drop a quick, razor-sharp cognitive assessment on kids. No paper and pen needed. All you need is your phone and the free cards that you can yeah. print out. Um, any other cognitive assessments that either of you two use on a regular basis? Well, like I said before, I give out a pen and paper assessment. I don't have them fill it out in class. I actually have them um, take it home. It's more of like a reference activity because I've given them all of the information they need sure. to write that in. So it's one, testing whether they can reference information, which is an important skill uh, to have. And the responsibility of, oh, man, I need to treat Coach Miller's class just like I teach math. I have a homework assignment to do. I need to put away, you know, put aside time. I have to sit down and work on this, even though it's, you know, kind of a simple assignment. I need to take his class as seriously as I would one of my academic classes because I have this work to do at home. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've used everything from student journals, pulling current events, student fitness logs, mm -hmm. uh, those types mm -hmm. of things. We've done, you know, rating scales and having the students identify where they are. You know, we are a Marzano district. And so we've done everything from, you know, our standards at the level three to looking at particular learning targets and having the students tell me where they are and reflect on that uh, within, within the scale itself. So there are definitely lots of different things that we've done as far as cognitive assessments. Uh, we're sure. trying to push more of the skill assessments. That's the, that's the part that yeah. to me, a lot of teachers are not comfortable with doing, and I don't know if it's because of time or number of students or what it is, but, you know, think from a physical educator's point of view. I mean, we are a skill, we are so skill focused mm -hmm. that it would come natural to assess our students. And a lot of times as teachers, we can say whether or not a, a student can successfully perform a skill, but there's not that documentation so right. one thing that I, I tell our teachers is you have to have criteria. 
for why a student is successful or not successful. Because if they're not successful, if you get a call from a parent and they say, well, why did my kid not pass? Or why, why did they fail in basketball? Well, you can actually state back the criteria that they were missing out on, as opposed to just saying, yeah, they just, they didn't make a shot or, you know, they couldn't successfully pass to another student. You can actually break it down to what pieces of the skill are they lacking? It's that part to whole model, you know, so what are they lacking to successful performance? For sure. Ashley, last question for my end. If I am either a first year teacher or let's say a 21st year teacher, and I just got hired by the Pinellas County School District, I've been placed in your charge. You're, you're responsible for making me the absolute best that I can, but I have no experience with assessing my students. What are some, what would be your, your advice or your, your, your sales pitch? Why should I immediately begin incorporating assessment into my overall teaching? Well, for a lot of different reasons. One, you know that what you're teaching is effective if you're, if you're able to get that data. The data drives your instruction. So if you know that your students are not successful, then you, need to know, then you know you need to go reteach. If you know that they are successful, then you have a lot more confidence to kind of move forward because in true standards-based instruction, like what you were discussing earlier, the skills translate from, you know, it could translate from one unit to another unit. It helps you for your evaluation purposes. Mm -hmm. there, isn't a, there is not a single teacher evaluation that does not discuss assessment within your practice. So it helps you to become a better teacher because you can, one, as a teacher, reflect on your performance, but it can also help your students to take more ownership in, in the instruction as well. That's fantastic. Folks, I don't know about you, I feel infinitely smarter now after just chatting with Ashley for this brief time. I, th this is the reason why we have people of this caliber on this show, because there's so much great information being spread. If you want to reach out to Ashley individually, she's on Twitter at a Grimes PE. Also, if you are in the Midwest, if I'm not mistaken, Ashley is going to be at the Missouri Aford conference. Is that right, Ashley? Yes. November 10th through 12th. So if you're in the area and needed an extra push to get you to, to register for that conference, it's not too late. Go on out there, see Ashley, give her a high five. So what a great job she did. And uh, we'll rock and roll. Ashley, thank you so much for your time and for popping on with us today and, sh and sharing your wisdom. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you. And folks, if you have any questions for us, any questions about the show, if you would like to be a guest or have a topic that you want us to chat about, feel free to reach out to us. You can reach us on email at openforumpod at gmail.com. You can tweet the show directly at openphized. If you have a question or comment or anything you want to share with Mike and I individually, I'm available on Twitter at phizedfreak. And I'm at coachmillerpe. So definitely keep those questions and comments coming. We love chatting with everyone in the PE community, and we truly want to make the show an open forum. So keep the questions coming, keep the topics coming, and until next time, stay active, everyone. This podcast and all of the great services provided by Open are made possible through the support of U.S. Games and BSN Sports. Every time you purchase physical education and athletic equipment through U.S. Games and BSN Sports, you are supporting a network of teachers helping teachers. Open is a public service organization 
Learn more at openphyzed.org.